Hello and welcome to Sex in the State. I am your host, Kathy Reislowitz, and today I am going to uh, use this podcast to share with you a podcast I was on recently called The It Cast with Nika Shirell, where we talk about masculinity and loneliness and other topics um, in celebration of the beginning of Men's Health Month, which is June. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Thanks. I do feel like that's a community that's not often reached out to in these conversations in a holistic and inviting and welcoming way. Totally. I think it's changing, but definitely we've got some work to do. I think it's really important for women and for feminists to address how gender norms and masculinity norms and sexism uh, impact men negatively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk a bit about that. I'm like, I love that you said sexism because I, I love the work that I do. And I have heard a number of men who have a really hard time talking about this because of the stigma of it, honestly. And there's a lot of truth behind what is happening. It's just, it's not a black and white conversation. And I think that there's a lot of very easy to polarize these topics. Um, talk a bit of more about sexism and the way that that, honestly, how we can shift a lot of that, but the way that it's presenting. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's a lot to say. Some things that come to mind are, you know, you mentioned the stigma. So there are a lot more women on antidepressants um, and in therapy than men. And so Obviously, you could claim that, you know, women are having more mental health problems than men are. But when I looked into the data, what I found was that's not, there's not a lot of evidence for that being the case. Um, There's a lot of evidence that men and women have uh, mental health difficulties at about the same rates. Um, The difficulties they have are different. Um, But, you know, I, I think it's really hard to argue that men aren't on antidepressants and aren't in therapy and aren't otherwise seeking uh, help with their mental health challenges because they're all squared away when we know that the overwhelming number of deaths of despair are among men, um, for example. And so uh, I think, you know, we've got to think about, well, why are men not, who are clearly suffering, uh, not looking to, uh, find help with their mental health struggles. And I do think that stigma is a huge part of it, particularly our norms around masculinity. And when I say that, I mean norms like men are supposed to be stoic. They're not supposed to complain. They're not supposed to be vulnerable. They're not supposed to depend on other people. Um, I think that all of these expectations make it more difficult for men to seek help and still feel like men. And I think further complicating this picture is the fact that society punishes men for performing femininity far more than it punishes women for performing masculinity. Um, And so it's difficult for women, you know, we say check your privilege and I'm not saying that like being female uh, in our society is a privilege necessarily, but the concept that you're not gonna understand a struggle without listening to the person who's lived it uh, applies here that, you know, a woman might say, well, you know, yeah, maybe going to therapy is coded as feminine, but like I do things that are coded as masculine all the time, but it's the stigma is different. 
right. when we violate gender norms versus what men do. So, and very interestingly to me, the kinds of men who hold these strict gender norms most tightly um, tend to be lower education, lower skill, lower income. Precisely the cohort of men who's most likely to have mental health struggles mm-hmm. and already have barriers to finding help in the fact that it's expensive and time consuming and difficult to find help for mental health problems. So when you add this then gendered stigma, uh, masculinity norms onto the problem, then it becomes easier to see why we have this disparity. Mm, wow. I love that. You know, I never thought about, I've always thought like the performing masculinity and the way that it does sort of ostracize men, but really looking into the space of the need for mental health and that like being considered weakness, like you're not a man if you have to ask for help. That is devastating. Well, and it also goes into the whole American idea of you need to be independent and you need to be rugged. Mm -hmm. Um, And then another way I think that masculinity harms men is the other big focus of my writing recently has been loneliness. And I think that some of the norms around masculinity, again, about not asking for help, not being vulnerable, not seeking interdependence, um, are not talking about feelings, right? How do you develop intimacy with other people if you're not willing to be vulnerable, if you're not willing to uh, be depending on them sometimes, if you're not willing to talk about your feelings with them? It's, it's an inherently isolating set of norms. And you see in the data that men are on average more lonely than women. And again, I think that I'm not gonna say that masculine gender norms are like the whole reason, but I don't see a reality in which they're not exacerbating the situation. Definitely. Yeah, I love what you were talking about, uh, performing femininity versus performing masculinity. I perform more masculinity than femininity these days, even though I'm pretty gender fluid and I don't mind. If I feel like wearing a dress, I'll wear a dress. And if I feel like wearing a suit, I'll wear a suit. But people will either admire it or think I'm very sexy. Even the men, like they're like, ooh. And I think it comes from the confidence, but it's either invisible or it's admired. And then I think about men in the same situation and it's ridicule. You know, it's, it's, it's humorous, it's ridiculed, it's um, looked down on. And there's a whole, there is the whole double standard. I think that that plays into the gender toxicity aspect of it too. Cause like, I don't want to say toxic masculinity or toxic femininity. It's just gender toxicity. It's the, what we put on other people based on our normative beliefs. Absolutely. For sure. And there's not, yeah, there's nothing inherently toxic about femininity or masculinity. Mm-hmm. They're fine. They're great. They're just clusters of traits. Some of which are good, some of which are bad. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, your experience is borne out in the data and in other anecdotes. So for example, if you look at Hollywood, um, women are doing Kung Fu and kicking butt and shooting people and are being aggressive and wearing suits. And like, that's all awesome. Mm -hmm. We love that. But when, how often do you see leading men wearing dresses and, uh, you know, in any way performing femininity? It's very rare. 
Um, and, and again, when they do do it, it's a, it's a joke. It's funny. Right. And so I think, you know, and then you've got data on literal like playground dynamics of when boys are not sufficiently masculine, they're mocked and excluded um, in a way that just doesn't really happen with girls. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and then you go back into the ignoring versus ridicule aspect and society, societal norms, they form in children at a very young age. So if something is pointed out as bad or wrong or negative, it there's I don't I don't know. Elementary school was kind of like Lord of the Flies, like it just. (laughs) (laughs) It's not straightforwardly easy for anyone. (laughs) Um, but yeah, you know, that's, and I want to go on to so many different topics because I'm like, okay, we're talking about, um, you know, some bits of authoritarianism, but I actually want to jump back to the depths of despair part. Like you just touched on it. And when we were talking about that, like it just totally blew my mind. I had never considered it. And I had heard in the past, probably when I was in high school, that while women are reported as being more depressed more often or might consider suicide, men are more likely to succeed at it. And that was like, it it was a surprising idea. And then I think about like what I've actually seen in my life and I see it, it's very true. And that disparity, like let's talk a bit about that because it doesn't get the attention it needs. Yeah, totally. I I completely agree. So I think we started talking about this because I brought up that, um, I forgot what year it was, 2012, 2017, um, somewhere in the teens, the average life expectancy in America dropped for the first time in decades. So we've been, um, our healthcare has advanced, um, you know, our jobs are less dangerous, uh, for a variety of reasons, life expectancy had been lengthening in the U S but it dropped. And what these two researchers, um, I want to say Angus Deaton and his wife, uh, I forget exactly, but they started to look into it. And what they found was a huge increase in deaths from early deaths from alcoholism, uh, drug use and or drug overdose and suicide. And so they named this cluster of early deaths, deaths of despair, because they were finding that these were happening, um, particularly among people who were not having a good time in life, uh, lower income, m- more likely to be unemployed, more likely to be socially isolated, um, more likely to live in rural areas, uh, things like that. And so, and again, these deaths of despair, uh, they're, um, mostly men, um, a lot of middle-aged men. Um, and yeah, you see a huge correlation between, again, loneliness, social isolation, and, and these deaths of despair, especially suicide. A lot of times men um, will find themselves uh, kind of redundant. They don't have anyone depending on them. Um, there are so many factors that play. I do think this sense of meaninglessness, rolelessness, purposelessness is a huge part of the problem. Women, for example, even low-income women, um, even low-education women are usually caretakers or far more likely to be caretakers. So there's someone who depends on them to keep going. 
um, that's less true of men. And I think that has an effect on their um, death of despair rate. Yeah. Yeah, that's big. And what came up for me is when you see a woman who is <clears throat> in a, in a, in a disparage mode, whether it's upset emotions or even like general like danger, you run to her side. You, you capture that, you help, like these different things. But when a man is hurting, it's not only is it not good to express it, but it's really easy to ignore it, to like just completely not see it. And I think about so many people in my life who are, who either have succumbed to that or are in a reality where that is a possibility. And it's, it's interesting to not know what depression looks like. Absolutely. I think as well, one of the things that has really struck me looking into like how, what's going on with men is we live in a world where men are at the top of pretty much every single important hierarchy in society. So when we look at a woman who's suffering versus a man, we're going to often have more compassion for the woman because we're going to see her as necessarily less empowered than the average man. Um, besides the gen the other gender stuff and besides the fact that women are less threatening. Um, but that, ignores the fact that men, while they're overrepresented at the top, are also overrepresented at the bottom of every hierarchy. So that's true. And then there's the fact that the average woman has been doing better over the decades since the 1970s in the U.S. We're earning more money. Our labor force participation is up. Our average our education levels are the difference in degrees between men and women is bigger than it was in the seventies, but in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So that gives you a sense of the degree degree gap. The situation for the average man in the U S has been declining since the seventies on pretty much every major indication. Um, wages are stagnant um, at the same time that we have, really high rising costs for the basic necessities of life, the big purchases, healthcare, education, transportation, so on and so forth. Um, labor force participation is declining, um, especially among prime age men, um, you know, mental health problems. And so it's easy to look at, again, the top of the hierarchy and say, men are privileged relative to women, which is true in a lot of important ways, but that doesn't mean the average man is doing better than the average woman necessarily. And, and we need to, again, look at trends. And so the, the trends for the average man are not going in the right direction. Yeah, that's fascinating that you, you point out the trends are taking literally away from the possibility of this prototypical idea of masculinity. So yes. it's like, you have to be this, you have to be that. But then when, you know, you turn around and look at it, it's like, well, those opportunities and those roles are few and far between. And the overrepresentation at the bottom, I mean, I think that's, 
fascinating. I have heard men make these complaints and listening from a place of privilege, it's like, what are you talking about? But like looking genuinely at what's happening, it's like, oh yeah, like parental alienation is a big one that men face. Um, uh, being, uh, being removed from their own homes. Like there's just, there's so many layers of, of muck and it never occurred to me before. It just never even crossed my mind. Yeah. I mean, over incarceration disproportionately impacts men. The child support system is extremely punitive and inefficient and, uh, mires men in poverty, um, without the, the, the amount it mires men in poverty is greater than the amount that it helps the children. Um, there are, yeah, a lot of structures that are set up to keep men again from, we have a huge problem, I think, in that the norms have not caught up to the macroeconomic realities. We are still teaching men that the life path is get a degree or get a blue collar job, earn a decent salary, get married, be a breadwinner. Um, that's not like possible with the current norms that we have in place and with the current economic structures we have in place right now for uh, a lot of men. And so they're reasonably angry, I think, honestly, um, to be told, A, that you are going to get this just because you're a man. I think especially white men are told, like, life is easy for you. And then they get out there and they're like, it's nowhere near as easy as I was told it was going to be. And then they're told you're worthless unless you're a breadwinner. And it's very difficult for them to be breadwinners because the demand for female coded labor is rising while the demand for male coded labor is declining. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a angering situation. Like I understand it. I mean, and it puts, it puts men in particular into this capitalist rat race around masculinity. It's like, here's the, the goal and you're never going to get to it based on what's available. We do have a question. It is, do you think this leads to misogyny? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that men look at their problems and they blame women. And I think that there's a whole... Uh, ecosystem of people who want men to blame women and minorities for their plight that they say they they are like well you know jobs are a zero-sum game and the more women and immigrants and um, non-white people uh, who are competing with you for the scarce number of jobs uh, you know the worse you're going to do in that competition and so you uh you should blame them or you know everything was fine when women were barefoot and pregnant and didn't have these high expectations and didn't weren't competing for you in the labor market um and so if women would just like get back to their proper place then everything would be okay for you well if you're in a position of power um let's say you're a legislator or hell you're just a grifter right um it's much easier to sell man men blame women than it is to sell men, well, here's a complicated set of macroeconomic changes and policy 
uh, choices that have helped contribute to the situation that you're in. That doesn't sell. That's not fun. Um, and so, and for the leaders, it gets the responsibility off of them. Um, it helps create outgroups. It helps uh, bring men into what feels like, you know, the in-group. Um, this is like classic authoritarian. It says, I don't have to fix this problem. You know, we all just need to further oppress the outgroup to regain our uh, correct place in the, in the hierarchy. So I absolutely think it contributes to misogyny, both just on a natural level. Like when you see, when you go to a job interview and they end up hiring a woman or someone who's not a white man instead of you, it's like, yeah, it's their fault. Um, and because we have this ecosystem of influencers who are selling this false narrative, I do think it definitely contributes to misogyny. Absolutely. And it's that idea of keeping the masses pitted against each other, because if you're fighting each other, you're not going to step back and see the overall picture. I hear like the mass economy shifts are so real. And, um, oh, um, Darn it. The uh, <laughs> the conversation around uh, masculinity, um, the normative, that's that part. So the gender norms haven't changed. And that's the bigger societal problem. It's the idea. And, and also there's a lot of fear for them to change right now. Like we're actually in these conversations around what does gender mean? How are we expressing ourselves? What um, What is okay and not okay? And we haven't updated the playbook. Yeah, I think that's that's really kind of what's at play here is we have norms that our macroeconomic situation makes it really hard for men to meet. And so we either need to change the macroeconomic situation, which seems really unlikely in that I don't see a few. So it used to be that the majority of jobs in the U.S., demand for labor in the U.S. was in agriculture and manufacturing. So these are male-coded jobs. These are jobs that the average man is going to be way more competitive at than the average woman. Well, automation has uh, probably permanently ended the demand for a large amount of manufacturing labor. Um, same for agriculture. So where are the new jobs being created? They're being created in services, technology, and healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, these are in the services and uh, healthcare realms, female coded. Um, and in the technology realms, they're coded masculine, but the reality is that any job that requires you to sit and focus on one task for hours and hours at a time, um, the data kind of shows women are kind of inherently at an advantage at. Um, and so it's going to be very difficult to create a situation where demand for male labor exceeds demand for female coded labor. It just doesn't seem likely to happen. And so it seems like we're going to need to uh, reevaluate our gender norms. Um, and I think that there's evidence that that is possible. I wrote recently about Scott Alexander wrote a post about assortative mating and a female hypergamy. And what he found was... Wait, I'm so sorry. Hypergamy? <laughs> sorry. Okay. Hypergamy just means the desire to marry up. So 
usually status. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Brain testing. Yeah. Continue. <laughs> yeah. So usually it's uh, the idea that women marry the highest status man that they can. And so another way to say it would be like the beauty status, right? The woman mm -hmm. brings beauty into the marriage. The man brings status. Um, so if you look at marriages where the woman earns more money than the man, they tend to be not great. You see higher instances of domestic violence, of cheating, of fighting, of divorce, of women having taking more antidepressants, like all kinds of negative outcomes in those marriages. What Scott found was that that used to be true of marriages in which the woman had a degree and the man didn't. And then what happened was women started earning more degrees to such an extent that those marriages became much more normal. And so the theory is that the marriages that the woman has more income are so fulfilled with strife because, well, there are two reasons. One is that they're stigmatized because they're unusual and they sub subvert gender norms and also because the man feels a masculinity threat and there's evidence that men feel masculinity threat uh there's a lot but um i mean one is that it's a norm that the man is supposed to earn more than the woman um if you look at like pew polling most people say that that's they think it's more important that the man earn a living to support the family than the woman um if you look at women's behavior women will, wives will take lower paying jobs and work fewer hours in order to not out earn their husbands. And when they do out earn their husbands, they'll lie about how much they earned uh, to maintain those gender norms. So protect the ego. Um, if protect, must protect the ego. Um, and again, like I have compassion. These men are under a lot of societal pressure um, to, to, to perform masculinity, to, to be men. So anyway, but if the marriages where women had more degrees, had the degree and the man didn't, were able to calm down as that situation became more normal, there's hope, in my opinion, that as women start to out earn men, which is um, definitely more the case before women get married and have kids, um, and I, I think is going to be the case generally before too long, uh, as that becomes more normal, perhaps perhaps hopefully these marriages will also calm down that the norm will change um and that it won't be seen as like you're not a real man if you don't you know earn more money in paid labor that you can prove your manliness you know in other ways yeah you know you make a really interesting point i just got two things from what you were sharing on the one hand, the jobs that are coming, not only are they more, I, I could female coded that I can see how that definitely makes sense, but they're also privilege associated, like to be able to get a job working in a hospital or a tech job or something, those are not always considered blue collar jobs. And so there are people who wouldn't necessarily have the education or the means to be able to get into this different workforce arena. The other thing that you brought up I thought was really powerful is that 
isn't this kind of like the best first world problem though? Cause like, who, like who wouldn't necessarily want to be able to relax and be taken care of and like have, um, have that opportunity if they could and letting go of the norms allows people to be that. Like there are people who naturally want to be providers and there are people who naturally want to be provided for. And I don't see where that flows on a strict rule about what body you were born in. Oh, I mean, I think the idea that your genitalia should determine uh, what you're supposed to earn in relation to your spouse is like totally insane. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I definitely look forward to a world in which your uh, earning is determined by your ambition and your interest and your skills rather than your, you know, whether you have a penis or not. (laughs) It just never really made any sense to me. On the other hand, I do wonder, I do believe looking at the data that there are innate sex differences in behavior. So for example, men across time and space have been shown to have uh, a a greater predisposition towards violence than women. Mm -hmm. Like this is just, it seems to be innate. Um, So a norm pretty much across time and space has been not that the man is the breadwinner necessarily because women have always engaged in paid labor, basically. I mean, in, you know, agricultural societies, women helped with agriculture. Um, and then like in medieval and Renaissance times, women would, I mean, that's where the term cottage industry comes from. Women would brew beer and spin and weave and like do things that they could do in their homes with their children around that were, you know, made money for the family. However, it does seem like a pretty consistent norm that the buck for material provision did stop with the man, that he was the one primarily responsible for material provision for the family. And so it's an open question whether and to what extent our masculinity norms can be flexible. Um, like, I hope that they are. You know, I hope that we can change our norms to fit our macroeconomic realities, because if not, <laughs> like, I think we're, we're, something will have to change. And I hope it's not like people stop getting married and having kids. Um, but... I do want to be realistic about the limits of biology because if we're not, we're going to spend, we're going to waste a lot of time and energy on solutions that aren't going to work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's, I'm curious to know if you see any, actual solutions because like we are we're stuck in this in this space and time and I do see historically sorry the historically the idea of men being the breadwinners meeting that competitive edge it's um it's that top of the totem pole thing and that's that scarcity conversation um even um the war capitalist construct that we're in where we have to be at odds which makes earning more competitive there and it doesn't necessarily have to be i think that actually might be in the realm of like a the performing masculinity trait um 
so I am though back to the the conversation around solutions. Like what can what can we do? Yeah, um, that's what I've been asking myself <laughs> for the past year. <laughs> no, but I, I have one short-term solution and one long-term solution. The short-term solution is, my God, let's decriminalize work, right? <laughs> like, um, so 30% around of occupations in the United States require a certification or licensure to, to perform legally. And mm. these certifications and licensures are everything from to sell insurance, to arrange uh, flowers, to do interior design, to, you know, you know, just plumbing. And, and it's like, okay, I understand why you would want your plumber to be licensed. At the same time, the Obama administration looked into the impact of licensure and certification on safety and quality. And they found it doesn't help. Um, it, it does not, certification and licensure requirements don't improve safety or quality. What they do do is they limit the number of people who can enter these professions. They skew the kind of person who can enter the profession towards the person who has enough privilege to go through the lengthy and expensive certification mm -hmm. process. They raise prices for consumers um, and they slow economic growth and they keep and they keep unemployment high. They keep a lot of people who would be great plumbers from being able to do plumbing because they, you know, either can't or afraid they can't get the certification. You know what you just said also, it triggered the fair trade certified and the whole economic the the global economy so like you have these countries that are selling goods and and products and everyone's like oh it's fair trade certified where you know it's like okay like these are places that are following all these rules but then you have the companies that can't afford that certification just like you're saying and so then they're getting overlooked because they don't have that little seal of approval and they may even be treating their people better like there's there's so many politics to that well it's it's pure protectionism it is the larger incumbents using state violence to limit their competition and to keep new entrants out it's what it is. And you can couch it under the terms of safety and quality, but we know that that's not what happens. Um, we know that's not how it works. And we know that's not really even the intent. The intent is to keep people who are already in these professions insulated from competition. So that's number one. That's something that states are actually experimenting with right now is, um, for example, some states are accepting licensures from other states. So not only do you have to get licensed to be a plumber, but if you move, you have to get licensed to be a plumber in that state. Very stupid. <laughs> so they're, doing, they're doing reciprocation, which is great. Um, there was a situation where, like, I think one governor eliminated uh, certification or licensure requirements for like state jobs. Um, no, he did, sorry, he eliminated degree requirements for state jobs. So that's another thing that I think would be an immediate help is men are uh, less likely to have degrees. A lot of jobs require degrees that shouldn't, there's no reason for them to require degrees. So if more employers stopped requiring degrees, I think you would see a huge boost in male employment. 
Um, so anyway, there are lots of ways to decriminalize work, but um, but that's the overarching recommendation is let's just like make it legal for men to work. Um, and then long term, I think honestly that AI has the potential to help decouple work from self-conception. Oh. So when we have a situation in which we as a society just require a lot less labor to get all of our material needs met, then there stops being as much of a justification for forcing everyone to feel compelled to base their self-worth and identity on their participation in paid labor. And I think that that could honestly be a huge boon to um, this masculinity crisis. Um, I would love to see men finding their self-worth in being good dads, being good partners, being pillars of their communities and less on their paychecks. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. I love that you said that because it's very easy to base your self-worth on how much action you're taking, like how many activities you do, and then also how much is in your bank account. That's a big one. And I know so many people out there listening and watching can relate to that experience. Like if I only have $2, I'm not the best human being because for some reason I only have $2 and I haven't worked hard enough to have more. Whatever it is, just kind of putting that mindset in there. Thank you for bringing that up. It's another point to capitalism. Um so, okay. Uh, I do, because Pride Month is coming up, um, I'm curious to know um, any particular stigmas that you see for gay men. Or is there any difference? I don't want to talk out of my ass. Uh, I, I'm not going to pretend as a, you know, bisexual woman to understand the gay male experience. And I don't pretend to understand the male experience. I've just read a lot about it. Um, I have not read a whole lot about how these gender norms impact men. I do think I have read that gay men heavily stigma, I wouldn't say stigmatized, heavily prefer more masculine men. And I think that's fascinating. Um, I think it makes sense in a way, if you're gay, obviously, to an extent, you like masculinity. But I think it, there may be more to it in that if a society prizes masculinity and if we do have evidence that men are more invested in status than women, so if masculine is higher status in a society and men are interested in status, then, you know, um, so I, I do think it's difficult for more feminine men in the dating market, um, whether they're gay or straight. I think it's difficult for men in the, in the dating, feminine men in the dating market. Um, so I think there's an extent to which gay men have the opportunity to and do subvert uh, the more harmful uh, strictures on men, these requirements on men to perform masculinity. But clearly, it's not totally insulated from these pressures. 
And so I think um, there's just opportunity for straight men and gay men alike to challenge these, not even the norms, but just like, especially, I mean, let's not stigmatize gender nonconformance, whether we're gay, straight, or whatever, right? Um, and I think that there is a huge problem right now of, so the the movement for gay rights gained steam after drag queens rioted and burned down Compton's cafeteria in San Francisco. And they did that because police were arresting them, um, holding them, cutting their hair when they would dress in the in the wrong clothing for their gender. And now in 2023, states are passing the same laws that we rioted to strike off the books. Um, and so I think it's really just what I would love to see is for gay people and straight people to come together and say, these norms, these, these requirements, um, sometimes out the threat of state violence to perform a particular gender, uh, you know, is really, really harmful from everywhere from, you know, it's illegal to wear the wrong clothing to, um, I feel like less of a man if my wife earns more money than me. Like it, it hurts us on so many dimensions and in so many ways. Yeah. Mm. Gender terrorism is the word that just popped into my head. Like, I love it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I yeah, and it's it's very normal right now. All these laws and all these different things that are arising to limit and restrict, in my opinion, human rights. Like the rights of human behavior. It, it doesn't make sense that any of these things should be in legal doctrine. Like the type of fabric that I put on my body. No, it's, 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 I don't have words, <laughs> um, but I think one thing that's interesting to me that just occurred to me is that during the beginning of the movement for gay rights in the United States, there was a two camps, broadly speaking, there were the kind of white picket fence gays and that, so there's gays and happy and gays and fuck you right versus the fuck you queers and both sides had a point you know the gays were like i don't want to subvert norms i want to be normative i want to have this everything that i'm supposed to have in american society just a little different, just, just gay. Um, I want to get married. I want to have a single family home. I want to have kids and I want to participate in the military industrial complex. And, you know, I want to do all these things just as a gay person, um, versus the people who were like, you know, no, like I should be able to wear whatever clothes I want to. And I shouldn't have to perform my, you know, gender, you know, sex assigned at birth. And I should be able to not get married if I don't want to. And, all these things. And so I think, unfortunately, um, we still have a contingent of 
the white picket fence gays who are not ready to go to bat for trans people and for gender non-conforming people and for people who, for whatever reason, they don't need to justify themselves, like don't want to fit themselves into these requirements. Um, and so I think that there's a huge opportunity now to come together and say, some of these norms are just, they're not working for a lot of people, gay, straight, bi, trans, cis, whatever. Like they're just not keeping up with the times and I don't mean like progress for progress's sake. I just, I mean, which I, you know, do believe in, but I should be macroeconomically. Like there, our norms have not adjusted to to macroeconomic realities, and so there's an opportunity to to rethink them and to challenge them. Yeah, this is phenomenal. This, thank you for this entire entire topic um before we wrap up can you please tell us more about your work and how we can like get on your email list find all the things because it's amazing what you're talking about thank you thank you thanks for having me it's been wonderful so i write at uh kathyreisland.substack.com um it's a newsletter called sex in the state it goes out every weekday at 8 a.m um it's usually like a five to seven to eight minute read um, and then if you don't like to read, which I get it, I listen to most of my content. Um, I also do, I read it for a podcast and I also put it on YouTube. So yeah, if you want to get those newsletters, it is just, uh, you can Google sex in the state or, um, it's C-A-T-H-Y-R-E-I-S-E-N-W-Y-T-Z.substack.com. I'm also on Twitter at Kathy Risingwitz. Um, you can find me on Blue Sky, Mastodon, Discord, yada yada. Um, if you can't find me, just just uh, respond to one of my email newsletters and I'll, I'll let you know. But yeah, thanks so much for having me. I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> oh, gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right. So we will... Okay, before we, before we actually wrap, I do want to ask... There was this part we talked about, about communal culture. And do you have any ideas? Can you share what that is and any ideas in which we can create that? Because I think that also ties into healing the masculinity problem. No, sorry, loneliness problem. (laughs) Healing the loneliness problem. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm still looking into, I've not made as much progress on the loneliness question as I have with the gender norms and um, uh, kind of employment thing. But I will say, um, I think being a caretaker is a really important thing. And I think that creating interdependence, you know, whether that's being a caretaker or, you know, starting a club or honestly, in most of America, the primary institution for civil society um, is the church or churches. Mm. Um, So either, you know, if you're not into religion, like I totally get that. um, But the whatever you join or create, you know, if it can serve those same goals of um, providing meaning and purpose, interdependence, you know, having a group that sends around um the 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 meal train when someone has a death in the family you know these things are you know providing child care to each other like 
this this interdependence I think is is really essential. And so um, I'm looking at systemic changes. I, I think employment is huge, um, but as far as like what people can do, you know, that's kind of what I would recommend. But stay tuned. I'm looking into better answers to that question. I don't have them yet. I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you again for being on the show. Always a pleasure and so much gratitude. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. All right, everybody out there, thank you for joining us on the ITCAST, Real Talk on Sex, our community outreach podcast that increases diversity in conversations on health and sexuality. Through this work, we are creating a world where all people feel loved, honored, and respected. These episodes are brought to you by the House of Sherelle and TriggerHappyToy.com, where you can find some amazing products. And we have some events coming up this weekend. Tomorrow, I have my Releasing Sexual Shame, a Pathway to Freedom workshop. And uh, Pride is also, June is National Pride Month. So catch us Pride weekend, June 23rd to the, through the 25th, out in San Francisco, Trans March. Dyke March and Pride Sunday. And we'll have a booth and be vending. So please find us and check it out. Uh, as always, check out our weekly events. We have our Freedom Support Group on Sundays from noon to one Pacific, all online, hosted by uh, Ethology Collective and the House of Sherelle. We also have our Sunday brunch at Jolene's San Francisco, which is an amazing burlesque variety show. Go enjoy all the fun and there's brunch. So go hungry. <laughs> all right. Ask us anything. We definitely want to hear from you. Thank you for your questions and comments on the show today and keep keep up to date so that we know how to serve you. Get access to our bonus content on Patreon. You can learn more about this work at theitcast.com. Subscribe to this YouTube channel and share with your community. We will see you here next week. Bye.